Welcome to another message from the teaching team at Elevation Church Australia. For more information about our church, service times and locations, visit elevationchurch.com.au. So starting in 1906, in a small house on Bonnie Bay Street in the city of LA. I'll show you a photo of the house actually. Uh, this, is the, this is the house right there. Now at this house, there were a small group of people that were meeting uh, and they were holding prayer meetings. Their purpose was to seek God for revival and there was an expectation that he was going to move in their midst. This group of Christians were led by a guy named William J. Seymour, an African-American described as short, stocky, and blind in one eye. <laughs> they weren't really mincing their words with that description, were they? Um, but on, on April 9th, on his way to one of these prayer meetings, Seymour prayed with a member of this group for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They'd, they'd heard about it, they'd read about it, but they hadn't experienced it. But immediately, they began to speak in tongues. When he brought this testimony to, um, to the small prayer meeting that day, Seymour and seven others fell to the floor under the power of the Holy Spirit, and began speaking in tongues. The news quickly spread, uh, and people began to join the gathering. Within one week, the group had rented a building at 312 Azusa Street and launched the Apostolic Faith Mission. You can see, uh, yeah, this is, the, this is the church building right there. They, they, they held daily meetings from, from 9 a.m. till midnight. They saw powerful moves of the Holy Spirit, people being healed, people repenting, people desperately seeking God, people being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Revival was breaking out at Azusa Street. Uh, this was published uh, in the same year, an article, uh, excerpt from an article, Way of Faith. It says this, the center of this work is an old wooden Methodist church, marked for sale, partly burned out, recovered by a flat roof and made into two flats by a floor. It is unplastered, simply whitewashed on the rough boarding. Below is a room, 40 by 60 feet, which is 12 by 18 meters, filled with odds and ends of chairs, benches, backless seats, where the curious and eager sit for hours. In the center of the big room is a box on end, covered with cotton, with which a junk man would value at about 15 cents. This is the pulpit from which sounded forth what the leader, Brother Seymour, calls old-time repentance, old-time pardon, old-time sanctification, old-time power over devils and diseases, and the old-time baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire. By September of that year, 1906, the church had grown to about 300 people. News of the revival spread across the city, across the nation, and across the world. God was moving Again, despite the prevalence of racial segregation and what's known as the Jim Crow laws, uh, which discriminated against African Americans, at Azusa Street, it said that the wall of segregation was, was torn down. A black man provided leadership over a congregation where everybody sensed a form of equality as sisters and brothers seeking God together. Um, a uh, Pentecostal historian says this, people of all types, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, whites, men, women, native-born, recent immigrants, and foreign visitors prayed, sang, and came to the altar together. 
Early photographs clearly show African Americans, whites, men and women, all in leadership roles. This revival started in 1906, lasted for about seven years to 1913, and it ebbed and flowed in its attendance. And this was not necessarily a significant revival because of the thousands of people that flocked to that building. What's more remarkable and undeniable about what happened at Azusa Street is, it's, is not its gathering power, but its sending power. It's sending power. It was, a, it was a revival that led to multiplication and more. At least 10 significant churches were planted across LA alone. Many people who experienced God at Azusa Street became missionaries, carrying the fire of the Holy Spirit to China, Japan, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Egypt, Libya, and South Africa's and South Africa. Its ripple effects continue to be felt around the world today. In fact, we would class ourselves as a Pentecostal church, and Azusa Street is really the birth of Pentecostalism in recent history. Um, We don't want to be people that just live in a place where we just look back and think maybe of, you know, like the good old times, but we do want to be a people that use what God has done in the past to fuel us into the future. You know, during the uh, sort of Christmas New Year break, I read through uh, Proverbs and Psalms. And, you know, there's a few of them, 31 Proverbs, 150 Psalms. And probably uh, my biggest takeaway, particularly from Psalms, is how often uh, the psalmists refer back to uh, the Israelites being freed from Egypt, going through the wilderness and, and stepping into the promised land. And, you know, that whole season in Israel's history in the Old Testament is not some... It's not just some nice metaphorical story. It's, it's history. It actually took place. But also, for us today, the Bible uses this story of, of the Israelites being freed from Egypt, walking through the wilderness into the promised land. It is the picture of our salvation story. That when we accept Christ, that we're all set free from the slavery of sin. That it's done by God's supernatural power, not our own works. As the Israelites walked through the Red Sea as it was parted, that's a picture for us today of into the waters of baptism that we walk out of the old and into the new. There's a wilderness journey that God takes the children of the Israelites on uh, because they had been freed from Egypt, but they still had Egypt in them. And in the Old Testament, Egypt is often a picture of the world. And so it's the same in our lives, that when we come to Christ, we are freed from the penalty of sin. But many times, well, not many times, let's be honest, all the time, the power of sin is still over our lives. And so just like God took the Israelites through the wilderness journey to get Egypt out of them, God takes us on a journey. It's one that we're on until we leave this world to get the world out of us. And so when, uh, when you accept Jesus, you get this brand new start. You, you're breaking out of Egypt. You're breaking out of the pattern of this world. But like I said, there's still a journey to take, and we do that together. However, just like any other journey, there's always a starting point, and maybe today's yours. Whether Maybe that's your salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never made that decision to accept Jesus Christ. You've never said, um, you know, I'm stepping out of Egypt or out of the world into what God has for me. 
But whether it's remembering our point and journey of salvation, whether it's reading accounts of past revivals like Azusa Street, or recounting times when God has impacted our own life, um, the, the, what we're looking for this month in this series, which is called Move Again, is, is, we're, is we're looking to have a desperate heart cry to say, God, would you move again in my life? Would you move again in our church? Would you move again in this city, in the city of Bandragal? Would you, would you pour out your spirit over our lives? There's a story of um, the great evangelist, Billy, Billy Graham, that as a college, college student, he was on a study tour in England. So he was from America. He was on a, uh, a study tour in England. And part of this study tour, they went to the house of John Wesley. Now, I know I've done a lot of history today, but we'll, 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 keep, we'll keep moving. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. And throughout uh, history, they, they saw incredible moves of God uh, through England, which impacted the world. And, and it's said of Wesley's bedroom that next to his bed on the wooden floor, there's these two divots. And the two divots in the wooden floor are from Wesley's knees getting down day and night praying and saying, God, would you move? God, would you move? God, would you move? And so uh, Billy Graham was there with this, this group of students. They were all going back to, the, back to the bus to leave, and they couldn't find him. They're like, where's, where's Billy gone? What's, what's, what's going on? Anyway, they traced it back, and they found him in Wesley's bedroom with his knees in the same grooves that Wesley had his knees in, just saying, God, would you move again? Would you move again? We are, we are desperate. We are desperate for a move of God. Billy Graham went on to, uh, I'm pretty sure either him or Reinhard Bunke, see the most salvations across the globe, see a move of God, particularly maybe, maybe even in Australia through, I believe it was the 50s, came and did crusades. Maybe your story is connected there. Maybe you were saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe a, um, maybe a, a relative, um, a father, a grandfather of yours was impacted by Billy Graham. Uh, the, the founder of our movement, INC, previously known as Christian Outreach Center, was impacted by Billy Graham. So even as a church, we are impacted through that. And so our prayer through this series is, God, would you move again? Would you move again? Our word for the year is more. God, would you pour out more of your power? God, we're desperate to see more of your presence. Holy Spirit, empower us to make more of a difference in our community, just like we sang about in our schools and in our workplaces. God, move by your spirit and bring those who don't know you to salvation, just like you drew us in. And so like I spoke about last week, we, we wanna be a church that, that comes with a rise and build mentality that lives and that carries God's light and God's life to, to all that we meet. We, we have a vision to... Rise and build a church that's not a religious tick-the-box place, but it's filled with power. It's filled with people who have been transformed by the power of God from the inside out. And so we are passionate about seeing others transformed with that same power. And, you know, we, we, we know that we aren't perfect. We remember what God has done, but we also know that what is ahead is greater than what has come before. And so we want to approach this month as we, I'm going to talk about fasting in a few moments, but as we pray, as we fast, as we set aside time, we want to approach this month with a God, would you move again in our lives? God, would you move again in our hearts? Would you move again in our cities, in our schools? Wherever we are, God, we want to take your presence and your power. But where does this move again 
begin? Where do, where, do we, where do we start? You know, our natural instinct is often to look externally. But, but I believe that God is calling us to look internally, to start with our, our own hearts. You know, it's so easy to point out uh, factors and circumstances or, or attributes in others' lives. It's easy to become cynical. You know, oh, I've believed for revival before. I've believed for God to move in my situation or my family before or in others, but, you know, it, it doesn't happen. It's easy, it's easy to become skeptical. Oh, I don't really like this style. You know, I'm more of a quiet person. Maybe I was raised, maybe you're thinking, oh, I was raised with a certain church background and, you know, we don't really respond to God like this. You know, it's pretty loud this morning. You know, I, I, I don't know, it's not really... It's not, it's not really my thing. But can I encourage us that these types of attitudes, these cynicism and skepticism, is exactly what Jesus called out in the crowds that were following him. And he does this by speaking about his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist. And so we're going to read from Matthew in a, in a couple of minutes, and just to give you a little bit of background, as you may or may not know, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and his ministry began before Jesus because the purpose of John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And so both John and James, they were on their kingdom purpose, but their God-ordained plan was a very different style. We'll, we'll discover that in a second. And so this is Jesus' critique of the crowd. This is a Matthew 11, uh, verse 16 to 19. You can uh, look in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen here. It says, this is Jesus speaking to the crowd. He says this, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let, let me just break this down for a bit, because it can sound a little bit confusing and, and a little bit random. So the scripture says that when the flute is played, you're meant to dance, but it says the people didn't dance. Then, then it says when a dirge was played or a, or a lament is sung, you were meant to mourn, but they didn't mourn. You see, these two genres of music are sort of like at the opposite end of the spectrum. There's the, the happiness, joy um, spectrum. When the flute's played, you know, you're supposed to dance. And then on the other end of things, there's the, the dirge, the lament, you know, you're supposed to mourn. And so what Jesus is saying here to the crowd is he's saying you didn't, you didn't forget what John was saying, and he didn't forget what I was saying. You just refused to respond appropriately. You see, Jesus and John, they had the same message, yet their ministry styles were sort of on the opposite. John fasted, lived in the desert. He wore animal skins. He, he, he was a bit weird, right? Locusts and honey was, was his lunch, right? So that's one side. Jesus came. So remember, both on their kingdom purpose just different style. Jesus came and he hung out with people. He wasn't in the desert. He was in the cities and the villages. He feasted. He even visited influential community members. And yet people, what, what Jesus is saying here, he's saying the problem is not the message or the messenger. He's saying John came out in the desert, speaking a bit crazy, 
with a few locust, you know, legs like Bear grill style, like sticking out of his, sticking out of his mouth. And he was like, repent fast, come out to the desert, come out of the world and be, and be baptized. And you're like, oh, that guy's crazy. And then Jesus came and he's in with the people. He's, he's, he's living life. Um, I, I read somewhere, some commentator said that when you read the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, coming from a meal, or having a meal. Like he wasn't, he, 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 he was into it. But he said, but you're not listening to me either. So, so, so what is Jesus saying? He's saying it's not the externals that's the problem. He's saying what's going on in your heart. They dismissed and they downplayed and disparaged what God was doing. He was moving through John but they were skeptical, their hearts. When God was moving through Jesus, they're like, I eats and drinks with sinners. They were cynical. And it can be so easy for us to sit in judgment of these men and women who missed what God was doing at the time. But I know even for my life, how easy it is for us to do the same. I know I've caught myself many times in skepticism. Caught myself many times in cynicism. And it can block us from responding and receiving the way that God wants us to. Maybe we're skeptical because God is moving in a way we haven't seen before or we haven't stepped out in faith for or it's a little out of our comfort zone. Maybe we're cynical because we've heard messages preached like this before. We might have uh, been part of revival or maybe we've believed God before and not seen it come to pass. But every single one of Jesus' listeners would have thought the same and they would have felt the same. They had heard the prophecies about God's coming king and the promises that he would move again. They had men rise up with messages only to be crushed by the authorities. And they were plagued by disappointment, disillusionment, skepticism, and cynicism. But the question that mattered to Jesus was not the question of the past. It was the question of what will you do now? Let's not allow undealt things of our past to distract our hearts and detach us from what God is doing today. So as, as a church, as a people, as individuals, how can we ensure that we don't become like this crowd? How can we ensure that we have a soft, open heart to know where God is moving and how He is moving in this time and this place? I'm so glad you asked. Let me answer that for you. Like Rachel mentioned already, uh, starting tomorrow, we have a 21-day season of prayer and fasting across all our locations. Remember, this is something that we do voluntarily. It's not forced or coerced, but we abstain from something in order to reorder our desires so that we can place God first. So uh, a couple of things to note. I know these might sound simple, but I think they're important. A couple of things to note. Fasting is not dieting. Fasting is not skipping meals so you can save money. We don't fast in February because we ate too much in January, even though I did eat too much in January, but that's not, the, that's not the purpose of why we fast. Fasting is not a hunger strike. God, God is not a distracted God, and a fast is not us jumping up and down and waving our arms saying, God, look at me, would you just, would you just do something for me? No, no, we, 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 don't, we don't fast to hunger strike, but we fast in order to feast on the Word of God. What happens is we just change our food. Instead of natural food, it's spiritual food. Fasting social media is not detoxing or going off the grid. Okay, fasting social media is you deciding that you will alter the words and the images that enter your life. Can I speak to the more mature uh, 
in age, people here, um, you might be like, oh, fasting, social media. That's not, that's not real fasting. Look, partly I know what you mean. But also partly, what, what does, well, all of us, what's important, what comes into our lives? And my gosh, the, the, the prevalence of just the garbage that comes through social media and Netflix and all those stuff is just huge. For probably all of us, particularly younger generations, that could be the greatest thing that they do this year. To say that, you know what, instead of feeding on that, and and I'm not just talking about all the obvious sin stuff. I'm talking about the comparison. I'm talking about the, oh, they just got a new outfit. Oh, I think I need one. I'm just talking about the, oh, they just put their, you know, for, for adults, you know, they just put their new pool in. And if you've seen all the landscape bits around and how they've got the, you know, all the fancy stuff, oh, I think I need that. How far are we in debt? A lot? Okay. But I think we can still do, like, I'm talking about all of that. So what it does is it says, I'm not going to let those things speak to me. Instead, I'm going to turn to the Word of God and let the Word of God define my identity, define who I am, define what's important and the priorities in my life. Can I keep going? That's a rhetorical question I was going to anyway. But anyway, fasting alcohol is not dry July in February. It's saying that maybe previously when the antidote was a, to a hard day was a glass of wine, instead I'll worship, I'll read the Word of God, and I'll pray. It's switching What's the priority in our lives? It's moving our dependency to God through prayer, worship, and fellowship with others from things like food, social media, coffee, alcohol, Netflix, binging, whatever it is. It's moving our dependency to say, I'm going to follow God, and I'm going to place Him first. And so Rachel spoke about it already, but there's a variety of ways to fast. You could fast food. It could be a total, um, so only liquids uh, or veggies, etc., known as a Daniel fast. It could be for part of the time. Can I encourage you, if you've never fasted food before, don't start with 21 days. In fact, don't start with 14 days. In fact, don't start with seven days. My advice would be to start with two. Start with two and see how you go. If you get to the middle of the second day and you are cranky, you are ticked off, can I give you some pastoral advice? Eat something, please, for the sake of the people around you, right? It's not working, okay? Don't just white-knuckle it all the way through and then go to KFC for the big bucket, right? Just get the big bucket, be a nicer person, and say, okay, God, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, and I'm going to try again. You can, so you can fast food. You can fast social media, Netflix, like I said, you can fast other substances you've relied on, so maybe alcohol, coffee, energy drinks. Um, we have fasting resources printed at our Next Steps area. We have them online on our website as well. And our series in life groups this month, the studies and discussions that, and questions that we'll do will be about prayer and fasting. And so we want to do this together. We don't do this alone, but choose something. I advise you to let someone know, have a, have a partner in crime, so to speak, with it. But say, you know, this is what I'm fasting from, but also this is what I'm fasting for. I'm believing for this in my life. I'm believing for this in my family. I'm believing for God to do a heart transformation in me. This is what I want to let go of, and this is what I want to take hold of. And so as I wrap up today, um, maybe Luke can come and join me because that'll make me go quicker. Uh, I want to give you two thoughts on fasting, um, and then we're going to worship again. Number one is this. Physical hunger leads to spiritual hunger. We're about to read from a psalm from David, 
And this was written as he was hiding from King Saul, who was trying to kill him in the desert. Farm, sorry, farm. Psalm 63, 1 to 5. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly, earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. I praise you. I'll praise you as long as I live, lifting my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I'll praise you with songs of joy. See, his natural thirst and hunger and desire that David has for food is now being satisfied by God and his presence and his word. See, physical hunger leads to spiritual hunger. When we fast and feel hungry, it reminds us to pray for others and to let Jesus fill us. When we have extra time because our evenings are not filled with the latest stand series, we open our Bibles and we allow the Word of God to shape our lives. Maybe our grocery bill is reduced and that gives us extra margin to give to the less fortunate to help out someone in need. You see, physical hunger leads to spiritual hunger. First one, number two is this. Spiritual hunger leads to supernatural power. Circling back to Jesus and John the Baptist, in Luke 3, Jesus is baptized by John and then the Spirit leads him to the desert where he fasts and is tempted by the devil. For many years, I uh, read this passage of Scripture and always had this thought of, yeah, that's right. The enemy, the devil wants to come in and wants to try and, you know, take you out when you're, you know, at your, you know, at your weakest, at, at your lowest. That's why, that's why the devil came to take Jesus out as he fasted and he was out in the wilderness. But that's, that's pretty incorrect. You see, because Jesus wasn't weak in that scenario. He was strong. He was relying on His Father to supply Him with supernatural strength. In fact, it was actually a pretty dumb move by the devil to go and tempt Him while He's fasting and while He's, he, he's there in the presence of God. Nevertheless, the Bible says this about Jesus after he fasted and after he overcame temptation. This is Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. You see, Jesus didn't emerge from the desert weak. He comes out swinging. He's ready to go. He's ready to shake the world. He's ready to build the kingdom. He's ready to walk in God's purpose for his life. And I don't know about you, but that's what I'm believing God is going to do in my life over this fasting season. I'm believing that I'm going to come out swinging. Hungry? Yes. But ready and raring to go. Ready to see more of God's presence pour out in our lives. Ready to see more of God's presence. Ready to see the city of Mandra saved. Come on. Ready to see every seat in this place filled. Ready to see lives transformed, marriages put back together. Young people who have had no purpose have purpose and life in Jesus Christ. Ready to see God move. I'm ready to see my stubborn father, 70 years old, finally bend his knee and say yes to Jesus Christ. 
Come on, I don't know what you're believing for in your life and your family. I say stubborn in love, of course. Also, I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen to my podcast, so should be safe. I don't know what it is for your family. What is it? Maybe it's a son or daughter coming back to Jesus Christ. Come on, maybe it's a family restored where there's been relationship breakdown. Maybe, maybe for you it's just a renewal of purpose. You feel like you just, you know, like that little mouse on the wheel is going through life, work, kids, personal transport of children wherever they need to go you know, rest on the weekend back again. Maybe for you, you're in a a season of retirement and you thought it was going to be amazing and the first six months has been great, but now you're like, what do I do now? My lawn looks amazing. The garden's great. I've fixed everything. What what, what do I do now? Maybe it's you believing for a new season of purpose and for God to move again. I don't know what it is for you, but I want to come out of this fasting, fasting season and I believe as a church, we're going to emerge stronger than ever. Because spiritual hunger leads to supernatural power. I don't know about you, but I need supernatural power. I need supernatural power to overcome the temptation of the devil, to continue to set my life aside to Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to live in the world, but I'm not going to be of the world. I need God's power to see that happen. I'm believing for the supernatural power of God over my children's lives, that the world will not get their hands on my kids, that no matter the influence of media or peer pressure or the lust of this world or the, or the lust of the flesh or whatever, I'm believing that God's supernatural power is over my children and is over my family. I'm believing for the God's power to fill their lives. And so this morning, really simple, would you make a decision what you're fasting from, but also what you're fasting for? Can I do a little like asterisk down the bottom of the book note here? Um, if, you've, if you're um, a person who has struggled with an eating disorder before, um, can I pastorally um, encourage you not to fast food? I think sometimes those things are not saying that you don't have victory over that anymore or anything like that, but I think sometimes it just opens the door and the devil just sort of sticks his foot in and think, ah, I'll jump in with that. Do, do, do something else. I encourage you to do something else. It's not, it's not less than anyone else fasting food or anything like that. We're all in our own journey with God. So let's bring to God, okay, this is what I'm fasting from and this is what I'm fasting for. So across this place, would you stand? The band's going to join me. We don't want to head into this season with apathy or with cynicism or with skepticism, but we want to head in going, Jesus, you are going to satisfy me. You are going to pour out your spirit over my life. And so in a moment, we're going to sing about the mighty, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Again, but before we do that, we never let a time go aside without asking people to make a decision for Christ. So all across this place, I'd love you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you've never said yes to Jesus before, I want to encourage you that now is a great time. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand where you are, and we'll see that hand. We won't bring you out the front. We won't embarrass you, but we want to pray with you and pray for you. So there's someone like that here this morning. You've never made a decision to say yes to Jesus. You've never stepped over that line to say, you know what, I'm giving my life to Christ. Or maybe you have before, but you know there's something come in that's come to distract and detach you from God. If that's you, would you just lift your hand where you are? 
You can lift it off seat and you can put it back down. Yeah, I see that hand. That's, that's awesome. Is there someone like that who wants to make that decision?